Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators podcast by Belay Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic worlds of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of Philam culture and speak with athletes, leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. Follow us on all social media at Belay Creative or Cultivate Labs, both with a K. This month, we are interviewing two very special guests in honor of October being Filipino American History Month. The first guest has spent the past seven years writing and creating art centering the iconic labor organizer and civil rights leader, Larry Itliong. For four decades, Larry Itliong was a Filipino American labor leader who organized and advocated on behalf of farm and cannery workers and immigrants. He founded the Filipino Farm Labor Union in 1956 and the Multi-Ethnic Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee in 1959. Gail Rumasanta's work has appeared on television, radio, on stage, online, and even in books. She's co-authored the first book about labor leader Larry Itliong with historian Dr. Don Babalon called Journey for Justice, The Life of Larry Itliong. She's an artist-in-residence at San Francisco's Brava Theater writing Larry the Musical, which recently received a National Endowment for the Arts Grant Award. She also is the Executive Director for the Filipino-American Development Foundation, supporting Filipino-American organizations and programs throughout the SF Bay Area including the South of Market Filipinas Cultural Heritage District. In this conversation, Gail makes the case that having more Filipino Americans in the arts is necessary for our community to thrive. Like I used to speak at the sorority like annually, like at the sorority, the Capsai Epsilon conferences, and I'd always ask like, how many of you are English majors? How many of you are history majors? How many of you are in and a science major, overwhelmingly no one was in the humanities. Can you imagine what our community is like currently without having people in it who do not analyze the humanities, who don't discuss the humanities, do not talk about politics, do not talk about current events, do not talk about art and how it relates to them, who do not talk about and connect the dots about our current conditions. When we don't have people like that, who do that as a living, who are experts on it, and who talk about it to our youth and talk about it in community, we really aren't anything but workers. We have basically just created a community that is only alive and creating families and passing down legacy of being workers. Because that's all we are. We're just turning out people who can get credit cards, who can get a mortgage, who put kids in private schools, or, you know, X, Y, and Z. Is that really what we want our communities to look like? Void of art and culture? Also, in this conversation, Gail gives practical tips on getting over creative blocks. 
she gives us insight on the experience of writing a whole musical from just a bunk bed. And she reflects on significant moments in Filipino-American history that still impact us in the present day. You can find Gail on Instagram at GRRomasanta and find Larry the Musical at Larry the Musical. Welcome to the show, Gail. We're so excited to have you. Uh, I think I'm cheating a little today with our guests because I've known Gail for probably over a decade, most likely. Yes, over a decade. And we met through Bindleston Studio. I even produced one of your original musicals, Love in the Time of Breast Cancer. How are you doing today, Gail? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. And thank you for having me, Nicole. And yes, I think we've known each other for 18 years or more. That's so crazy. <laughs> I know. Isn't that nuts? I'm like a decade. <laughs> Almost two decades now. Yeah, it goes, it goes yeah. by so fast. What I love about seeing your journey and knowing you for almost two decades is the amount of growth and creation you've been able to manifest in those two decades. I mean, I said it all in your bio, but you've just done everything. I feel like in every kind of medium, every kind of craft. But before we really get into it, I do this tradition and ritual with all of our guests. And my very first question is, which ancestors or loved ones would you call into this space and conversation? Oh, that makes me want to cry because I've had such a big season of loss. You know, the last three months, two wonderful people close to me passed away. And now in my work, it's almost like I'm just constantly speaking to those on the other side or trying to figure out their stories. And so I really feel like, you know, I am bringing into this conversation and, you know, the ancestors from my mom's side of the family who were farm workers and who had come here to the United States in the 1920s. And they actually, all the men from my mom's side of the family ran away, you know, and it was basically my Lola's brothers and first cousins all ran away here to the United States and ended up in Stockton where I live currently. And so I feel like, especially during Filipino American History Month, I am with them constantly. And they've been telling me their stories for a long, long time now. So they're here with us, Nicole. <laughs> so right now they're here. They're waiting to talk. <laughs> I can feel them. <laughs> Uh, I love that you bring it up. October is Filipino American History Month, and this is in honor. This episode and interviewing you is in honor of Filipino American History Month. What inspired you to write a book and even a musical about one of the most iconic Filipino historical figures, Larry Itlion? It's really because I was trying to problem solve for my family. My daughter was doing a report on famous people in history, and she had a long list of people that she could 
choose from. And nobody there was Asian American and nobody obviously was Filipino. And I thought to myself, no, Larry Itliang isn't on here. So I learned about him in college. And I also felt like, wait a minute, I could have sworn there was a book about him. And I Googled and I was really floored to find out there was nothing about him online. There was no book. There wasn't anything. And so it's really through trying to problem solve how to get this history to my own children. Did Journey for Justice, The Life of Larry Itliang actually come to be? From there, I called Dawn and asked her if she would write a children's book with me because she was working on the adult book. And she was game for it. And we finished it within two years with illustrator Andre Sabayan. And it turned into a longer journey for me and one without Dawn because she passed on the day we finished the book. Incredibly enough. And so that really was the spark was, you know, my own children. Very, very basic level of problem solving, but also utilizing my own skill as a longtime editor and a longtime editor for magazines and print publications. And just being within a publishing community was really, really helpful. I mean, all these things, you know, as an artist and an activist, you gain skills in. And at the time you're like, when am I ever going to use this? And like, oh God, I never get paid for this. Uh, (laughs) You know, why am I doing this again? And, you know, it really came through for me all those years and years and years of training as a writer, editor, and artist with things that I felt like was a terminal degree, a master in fine arts in writing of all things. And, um, and, you know, just working at Bindlestiff Studio, like it all kicked into high gear when this book came about. And I was able to fully, fully, really actually utilize everything that I learned as an artist in ways that I never had before. I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. I got my degree in <laughs> right, I got right. my degree in broadcast journalism. And for the longest time I'm like, what am I even gonna do with this? And I utilize it all the time for the podcast. So. Yes, exactly right. And you know, you get discouraged. Our community actually discourages us from like, what are you gonna do that? Why don't you actually get something useful where you could, you know, actually get paid a living wage and but get health benefits. Yeah. I did. We persevere and find ourselves in amazing places, which is always the bonus, right? Yeah. Quick shout out to Dre. He's actually our creative director at Cultivate Labs. Yes, Dre. Oh my gosh. He's everywhere. And honestly, he's prolific in that everywhere you go in Soma Pilipinas is his work. But, you know, you don't know. You don't know that bike rack he designed. You don't know, you know, that signage he designed in Selma, Pilipinas, Filipino Cultural Heritage District in downtown San Francisco. He's also an amazing artist who's been doing so much and everything over the last 20 years, but also within community. Yeah. But I want to say that about you too, because you are a prolific artist. And for those that don't know, Gail also is a talented musician, violinist. She was in the sketch group Tongue in a Mood. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and she was one of like the original folks, resident artists of Bindles of Studio, the only Filipino-American theater in the nation. So, you know, your artistry starts decades ago in the Soma, but also I wanted to ask you during that time in the 90s, which artists helped shape you, especially with your writing? I want to say that I have been a reader of everything, trashy novels, newspapers, magazines, and books. And I have to say reading a lot and often really helped shape me fully understand Bindlestiff Studio because it wasn't necessarily that I had, you know, I had family members who knew what to do in a theater and who taught it to me or were passed down to me. I actually, everything that I did is like recollected from other people's stories I read. (laughs) And so I couldn't point to one person and say they really inspired me, but the folks that I was surrounded by definitely in Tongue in the Mood just absolutely shaped. I was a published artist before I got to Tongue in the Mood, but I definitely began to see more of art as movement, as social movement within Tongue in the Mood and and within comedy and within theater and on stage. Alan Manalo, Joyce Juan Manalo, you know, and um, I miss her. I love her. Shout out to Joyce. You're one of our ancestors. Kevin Kamiya, who I still work with today. And there was that Lorna Velasco also. Just an amazing group of folks that I was able to really grow up with from my early 20s. I think I landed in Bindles Studio when I was like 22 or 23, and I did not leave until, you know, a lot, lot later. And so they really shaped me and helped me understand how to use art and movement in a way that I was only pulling from books before. Like my skill and my training was really just more academic and reading, but this was really kind of like hands-on experience to dream and to really envision a future of Filipino American consciousness, presence, and political accountability. Yes, all of that. You know, uh, I think Allison talks about artivism. And I feel like you beautifully encompass that word in everything that you do. Uh, From comedy to writing children's books to now Larry the Musical. But for those that also don't know, you are heavily entrenched in our community here in Soma Filipinas because you're the current ED executive director of the Filipino American Development Foundation. That's a lot. You do a lot, Gail. I mean, come on. Let's give yourself a lot of credit. (laughs) It's kind of nuts. Um, It's fascinating, right? Because like I said, you know, one time I went to law school in another lifetime. And at the same time I was going to law school, I was touring with the Bobby Venturi Band and I was doing shows at Bindlestiff Studio. And I was getting told left and right, you cannot be an artist. By very, very specific people, you can't be an artist because you will never make money. So you have to become an attorney. And I hated every moment of that journey I chose to go to law school. So I actually dropped out. I got a scholarship at California College of the Arts, CCA, for an MFA in writing. 
and just really went for it. And I think everything began to fall into place. I mean, I was always interested in politics and I read a lot of political theory and a lot of political books. Even before I got to San Francisco Bay Area, I was a congressional intern, fun fact, for uh, freshman congressman Stephen Horn, who actually used to be the former president of California State University, Long Beach, which was a college that I had gone to, the university I had initially gone to for my undergrad. From there, I've met a mentor in DC who told me, if you really want to learn about politics, let alone art, she didn't say anything about art. If you want to know about politics, go to San Francisco. So I decided to come to San Francisco and I was still a creative writing major when I landed here. Everything kind of was handed to me on a platter here in San Francisco, specifically in SOMA, politics and art. And, you know, at that time, too, when I was transitioning from Southern California to come here to San Francisco and back home to Northern California, I also started the sorority Kappa Psi Epsilon when I was 19 years old, which is kind of insane. It's 28 years old now. There's like over a thousand women who have gone through it. Mayor Jocelyn Manalo of Daly City is a sorority sister. You know, I started that when I was 19. So by the time I got here and all of these wonderful pieces of our Filipino-American community were handed to me, or not necessarily handed to me, but I was really hungry for them and I sought them out. Soma really was the place that I ended up working. I've been working there since the late 90s from Bindle Stiff to, uh, you know, working and training artists. I feel like I heavily invested in trying to teach writing skills and thinking story, storytelling skills at Bindlestiff and to other writers in the community, which in turn had me meeting and working with everybody there. And so eventually, after I wrote the beginnings of Larry the Musical, and then also Journey for Justice, The Life of Larry Itlion with Dr. Don Mabalon, who was a longtime friend, my old comedy buddy from the late 90s at Bindlestiff Studio, you know, it just made sense with all of my political experience, my nonprofit experience, and also my neighborhood experience and the community building in Samoa already that I would come in as the new executive director after Burn C. And Burn C actually was the founding executive director, and she's built up FADF to become a touchstone organization for Soma Filipinas. FADF is a fiscal sponsor for many of the well-loved Filipino-American organizations in San Francisco and also manages Soma Pilipinas Filipino Cultural Heritage District. And so it handles assets, it handles fiscal sponsorships, it handles, what else do we handle? Direct services. I'm like, like it's a really big juggle. But I think that was like, 20 sentences too long, Nicole. I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what do I do again? <laughs> well, you do everything. And I think I think that's what's beautiful about it. And, you know, we have folks that listen in from all over the world, from the Philippines to Dubai to wow, Australia. My cousin, shout out to my cousins in Australia, who are probably the eight people that are listening from Australia right now. But for those that don't know and aren't, you know, in California, Soma Pilipinas is in 2016 was finally recognized by the city and the state as a Filipino cultural district, one of few <laughs> in this country. 
And so Soma, meaning south of market, that's what Soma means. Soma Filipinas, it has, you know, really rooted itself in the Filipino-American culture and community here in the Bay Area. And folks from all over, not just the Bay and not just California, but the world, Filipinos come from all over the world to Soma to celebrate, to watch shows at Bindleswift Studio, you know, all of these things. So I just wanted to give a little context for our international listeners and folks, uh, even in L.A., who have never been to Soma. It's a magical place, especially for Filipino-Americans and for creatives alike. Uh, but one of my questions for you in regards to being the ED and a mother of four and producing and writing this musical, how do you stay sane? Like, what practices and routines do you do to maintain balance? You know, I've been thinking about that lately, and there is no such thing as balance. I think definitely my body tells me when it's done and I can't keep on going, you know, without rest or joy right? Because as a mom, you're either working or having joyful moments, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or cleaning. So, you know, there isn't really a big balance. And thankfully, each thing I've done takes turns in priority, right? So FADF, I'm always working during the day and the evenings. And then, you know, my schedule will shift. If something happens with Larry, then I have to shift Larry, you know, and work on it in the evenings. For instance, like I didn't go to sleep tonight or last night because I was working on Larry. And they will take turns in priority. And of course, my children are always the priority. And I think it definitely helps because I can never have balance. It helps that I have a partner who really, really believes in working together and helping, not even helping, but doing. I mean, it's not even help. It's just mandatory. He must do them because he wants to do them or he has to do them because he knows that I cannot. Childcare, logistics, and um, nurturing. That is huge to have a partner who does that, but then also a village who are there to help. And not only just a village helping me physically with my family, but emotionally for myself, right? Like, isn't it nice Like when we work with people that we've known for so long or we have a community of folks, you need mental health checks with folks or mental wellness, or you need people to push you to take a break. Just for you, I, I imagine it's almost kind of it's not the same, but it's like you need all the help that you can get because there is no balance, especially when it comes to community work and artism, right? So you need the community, but you also have to remind yourself for really proactive self-care. So it's kind of like a big bag of mush, but at the end of the day or the end of the week, it sorts itself out. And definitely, you know, a mom doing any kind of community work can never do it alone at all. Never. No, definitely not. You know, even when my son was born, so many people came forward and was like, what do you need? They're sending me DoorDash, oh, giving me, right. you know, hand-me-downs, strollers, things of that nature. And I think about it now, I'm like, how could I have survived without all these people stepping up? It really does, like you say, take a village 
again, physically, mentally, and even spiritually at times, you know, I feel my ancestors with me and, and, and those that have passed on too, you know, sort of like pushing me forward, keep on writing, keep doing your art. So I a hundred percent feel that, you know, what was funny as you were talking about FADF, just this moment and memory came into my head of you actually introducing me to Marco oh. at Trellis. They were co-working at Trellis in Soma, Filipinas. Uh-huh. Oh, that's right. And I was, oh, my God. I came and visited. Yeah. yeah, you came and visited. And I was visiting wow. from New York. I was living in New York at the time. And, and we met up. Right. And you're like, oh, you need to meet these people. You waved Marco over. And I remember him giving me his card. And then say, oh, oh yeah, we, we do right. this event called Undiscovered. And like a couple of years later, now I'm working at Cultivate Labs. We honored Marco last year at Ancestor Altars. I just watched the recap video moments ago. But yeah, so I feel Marco with us today, too. Oh, my God. That's right. I remember that. I remember that. And I hadn't seen you for some time. So it's almost like you walk in, you left and you went to New York and you traveled and then you came back and... You know, our folks are still waiting for you, for me, for all of us to be like, hey, man, we're here. We're here. We got you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because when I came back, it was like all these new faces. Yeah. <laughs> I made familiar faces, too, like yourself. But then all these new faces. And at first I was like, oh, is there even space for me? You know, mm-hmm. there's that, those you know insecurity feelings and not enough feelings. and But that went away very quickly especially with you as EDFADF. I remember one of my first phone calls was with you and just like, you know, I got the job at Bullet Creative. And we had like an hour long conversation, probably not even about our our organizations, but just catching up. You know, there are moments in your life where when everything comes easy, you know, you're doing the right thing. And so to see you back here again, even during those days, you know, when I would work at a trellis in Soma and and when you came by, even those days, it was like, OK, things are coming together. You know, things are happening. And then to meet you there and then to be able to see you back in Soma and to work with you. But in this community folds, like a lot of these things and some people may think it's hokey or they're like, what? But a lot of these moments and these milestones, I feel like are meant to be, you know, how could you have gone through so much and learned so much not to be where you are, exactly where you are in this moment and needing those skills that you thought at some point in your life didn't do anything for you or were just things that you liked but didn't know they're actually essential and core to who you are and would one day help you blossom into the person you had always wanted to be. A hundred percent that, you know, and now that you are that person, you are living what you had always wanted. And for me, and I'm pretty sure for you, it's like in community, in mobilization, in artivism, um, with folks like Allison and Dawn and Desi and all of our, our wonderful folks that we've grown up with and the leaders of Soma Pilipinas and even the folks that we see, like, isn't it trippy that you could go to an event, Nicole, and be like, oh my God, I've been working with them for 20 years. <laughs> but it's like, it's like just like, you know, it's great. It's like another day at the office. You're like, hey, what's up? Like, 
you know, you work together, you know, you take care of your family, you come back and you work together again and you're, you have your family along with you. It's just, it's, it's a good feeling to know that the work continues throughout all stages of motherhood, through all stages of community activism that you're in and through all stages of art practice. It's a rarity to be able to continually growing, but still connect with folks that we're at the beginning of your journey. Yeah, I'm grateful. I am grateful for this community, this position. But speaking about, you know, manifesting things into existence, when you were originally writing Journey for Justice, did you know you'd be also creating this musical? How did that come about? You know, in my mind, I really did feel like, and when we're looking at the writing and Dawn was the historian and this was her research. I kind of was creating the building blocks of story for it. We'd always have these conversations and I'd be like, Dawn, we need this to, you know, increase the conflict. We need this. And she'd be like, no, that's not part of history or this and that. Like we need to stay true. And we did stay true to history. But at the same time, in order for me to imagine really what was going on and consolidate and put into context this story, I had to really see it as a film. And to see it like storyboarded in my mind. So if you actually have the book Journey for Justice and you read each page or each layout, it's actually storyboarded. It's actually like written so that you can actually take the scenes and drop it in a script. You could take these scenes and drop it in a film. You can take these scenes and drop it in a musical. And so that's how they were created. So I kind of always knew that there might be a life. I felt like there was a life beyond it because it was created, at least in my mind, specifically in a visual sense, and especially in a 3D sense for me story-wise, because that's just how I think. And so getting into the musical was just a beautiful surprise, one that I didn't anticipate, but made so much sense when I started working on Larry, the musical. And so we've been working on it for, I want to say almost four years. And even throughout the pandemic and it has brought me so much joy to work on it and to work in music because out of all the things that I do, I have to say that writing music I love and I'm most passionate about, but I can't say that I'm the best at. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, oh yeah, I probably, I don't know if I could make money off of being a musician. You know, I did co-compose with Kevin Kamiya the music for the first Google Philippines campaign commercial. And that was really exciting for me, but in other sense of being like an expert or understanding the violin instrument, like it gives me joy versus being an expert on it, right? It's just one of the things that I leave untouched. I've not mastered it. I never will, but it brings me joy even if I'm playing off key. And so Larry's almost kind of like a very raw love for me like that. Like, I don't even care if it's any good. Like it just brings me so much joy to put together another musical again to put together music, emotions, writing about our community and writing about the people that I loved and who I grew up with and imagining them in these stories and these scenes. You know, it's just really joy. Like, I know that sounds awful. I don't care if it's any good. Luckily, I have lot, I'm great collaborators and, and, and we all care if it's good. But for me, like, I haven't had to worry about, wow, I think this sucks and I need to work harder at it. Like, I just want to do it because it's something that makes me happy yes yes 
oh, I feel that in my soul. You see? You know, I'm, I'm currently writing the script about my own uncle, Pat Salaber, who is a civil rights student activist and part of the Third yes. World Liberation Front. And I feel the same way. I, I think as people of color, especially women of color, writing about these historical figures, there's all this pressure to get it right, to honor them, to fit in as much as you can. But, you know, recently taking a course through Sundance, really it's what is going to bring you joy? What's going to make you happy also? Because yes. you are the creative, you know, and, and although these pieces of art are based on true events and real people, we also have to inject parts of ourselves as storytellers. Right. Right. That's the truth. And we have to alleviate some of that pressure because for the longest time, I just didn't want to start because it was too much pressure. Right. And I right. don't want to get people angry at me. How did you deal with that kind of, you know, pressure and everyone having opinions about how you need to do certain things? Oh, yeah. No, totally. I get it. And especially as women. And it's like, well... You know, and especially women of a certain age, it's kind of like, well, you're not exactly young, but you're not exactly like a Manang yet. Although in, in some people's eyes, I am a Manang. I think they do call me Manang. <laughs> Manang Gale or Adegale in some circles. But I think people will love you or hate you anyway. And I've always been a polarizing personality. Like either you really like me or you really don't like me. And it's never been like, oh, I kind of like her. Like it's either you really hate me or you really like me, which sucks. But I'm at an age where it's kind of like, well, I think people will hate you if they wanted to hate you and they'll like you if they want to like you anyway, regardless if, you know, regardless if your intentions are good, regardless if what you put out is good or bad. And so there's this one time I spoke at UC Irvine and everybody there, all the students there, really, really incredibly smart and just uh, just capable, right, of achieving. And I told everybody, this is what I tell my daughter, you shouldn't strive to be the best. You should just strive to do your work and put it out there. I will tell you that mediocrity sells. Have you watched a crappy movie? Have you read a really bad bestseller that has been turned into a movie and has made a billion dollars? Tell me you have right? Everybody has. And so if you just want to create and you want to put things out in the world, don't try to be the best. You don't have to be. There is a person who has more access than you, who has the right skin tone than you, who has parents who can open the doors and have resources, who are incredibly, incredibly without skill, talent, and drive who are making a living at who and what you want to be. So don't ever think that you have to be the best in order to be who you want and create who you want. And I tell my daughter this all the time. Like, I'm actually a really good example of it. And I'm not putting myself down like, oh, I'm a shitty artist. I just put work out. Sometimes it's good. Other times it's like, oh, man, she probably could have done another workshop on that. You know what I mean? But I keep on putting it out. I mean, case in point, my violin playing. I love violin. And I remember when I started it up again, 
I was playing violin for Bambi Banduria and someone heard me and they told me when I stopped, they said, you know, I always hated the violin. It always grates on my nerves because it's so tinny. And I thought, wow, must be my violin play. But you know what? I didn't care. And I knew that I needed more skill and I knew I needed a better ear. But I made three albums with Bobby Banturia. I performed at the CCP at the Cultural Center of the Philippines. I was invited by the Philippine government to play there. I did the Google commercial, co-composed, and played violin for the Google commercial on probably mediocre capability on the violin. And I told all the UC students that they were in shock and awed that someone would actually admit that they're mediocre. And I tell my kids that all the time. I'm like, dude, just hustle and get it done. All you guys do is just do it. You know, if you get feedback and you begin to understand, I could have done it better this way, then do it again. But you really should not strive to be the best because mediocrity sells all the time, every day, all day. And as Asian Americans, as Filipino Americans, we are absolutely preoccupied with being perfect, especially artists. And so we stop ourselves from creating and like, you know, if I was thinking like that, then, you know, I probably would have been done like by the first kid. But I was like, you know what? I don't care. <laughs> I got four kids and I'm still I'm still slanging my heart. I don't care if it's half finished. We're going to read through this right now. <laughs> I feel that so much. I think also this idea that just get it out there. It also touches mm-hmm. on representation. Right. I think I right. think we get so bogged down and stuck in this whole perfectionist state and this Asian excellence. Oh, right, right, right. That we often are our worst enemy and we don't get stuff out there, whether that's scripts or music or, or whatever our craft may be, because we feel like it's not perfect. So it's not ready. So I'm just going to sit and watch Netflix for three hours. And if people take your advice, you just get it out there. It's just more representation. What I love about you and your work, you so beautifully have Filipinos in the forefront as main characters. And even in behind the camera or behind the stage. Why do you think it's important for you as a writer and storyteller to explore the human experience with Filipino Americans in the front and center? Regular mainstream media have always placed marginalized communities and people like Filipino Americans on the fringes of narratives. We're always on the outside looking in. We're never central to character development. We're never centered to the storyline. We're just kind of like a fun best friend or the witty best friend or like the gay best friend or the, you know what I mean? And so we're never at the center and we're never humanized and looked at as whole people and we don't have the art to view yourself as a whole person or to identify yourself as a person who has a range of emotions and desires and dreams instead of just being cheap labor which would be i'm just a farm worker i'm just a nurse i'm just making money so i could buy an expensive purse like you know what i mean if we don't see outside of ourselves outside of like paying a mortgage and putting our kids through private school or even just surviving on the day-to-day making rental payments but that we, in order to be sane, in order to be healthy, in order to be present in our communities and our families, we need to create. We need to absolutely create like children because 
you know, if we didn't create as children, then we're absolutely stunted as a community. If we don't raise artists, then we ourselves are stunted as a community and we'll never see ourselves as part of a narrative or worthy of having books, media, and movies and film about us. And we've basically just deemed ourselves as cheap labor forever, forever trying to make money to perpetuate a system that will never let you become who you are to begin with. And so we have to really look outside of ourselves to really nurture that within ourselves and within our communities and our families. And if you have children, to nurture that. You don't know how many times, you know, my daughter went away, Ruby, she's going away to film and media studies. And then when, when she tells people, you know, she's going to UC Santa Barbara and she's doing film and media studies, when UC Santa Barbara is actually known as like, they have the most like, I think, Pulitzer Prize winning physicists in any university, or they're really known for like their science, technology, engineering programs. And she says film and media, everyone's like, oh, like no one really knows what to say to that. And like, I'm pretty sure everyone's like, well, looks like she's going back home without a job, (laughs) you know, but we have to let our people grow. And, you know, at some point she will use that skill for film and media studies. I hope so. But she can also grow and become whoever she needs to be understanding art and how it pertains to life and the relevance in her own world and relevance to how she's going to make a difference for herself, right? Not even like on a larger scale, but how do you become sane, healthy, and whole so that you don't perpetuate, you know, a community that's absolutely traumatized and limited by the belief that they're forever cheap labor. Mm. Yes. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like when I think about the Filipino American community and how we make our children become nurses, like predominantly nurses or in the medical field or in bio is biochemistry. Like I used to speak at the sororities like annually, like at the sorority, the Kappa Psi Epsilon conferences. And I'd always ask like, how many of you are English majors? How many of you are history majors? How many of you are in and a science major, overwhelmingly, no one was in the humanities. Can you imagine what our community is like currently without having people in it who do not analyze the humanities, who don't discuss the humanities, do not talk about politics, do not talk about current events, do not talk about art and how it relates to them, who do not talk about and connect the dots about our current conditions. When we don't have people like that who do that as a living, who are experts on it and who talk about it to our youth and talk about it in community, we really aren't anything but workers. We have basically just created a community that is only alive and creating families and passing down legacy of being workers. Because that's all we are. We're just turning out people who can get credit cards, who can get a mortgage, who put kids in private schools or, you know, X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it's all cogs in the system. It is. And it's just kind of like, wow, do we really want to be that way? Is that really what Filipino Americans, is that really what we want our communities to look like? Void of art and culture? Yeah, and I think that's why 
you know, growing up, I come from a long line of pioneers and disruptors of systems that weren't meant yes, for us. Yes, you do. You you absolutely and do. So growing up, I thought that's just normal. But then in high school and college, mm-hmm. seeing other Filipinos and, and, you know, the way their families to talk about politics or the arts or basically talk shit about the arts. It was like mind blowing to me, like, oh, my gosh, all the other Filipino families that look like me don't operate and think like my family is very very interesting right. not to say that we are better or worse or, or or what but it was just so interesting to me to see the difference you know my dad would always preach always create art always create art stay away from the man to work for the corporation <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> my dad was such a hippie in that sense looking back now I appreciate it because it made me who I am today. And he taught me the most valuable lesson was to question everything. Right. That is so rare, though. But how did you navigate? How did you navigate when, you know, the early years, like the early 20s or even teenage years? Like, how do you navigate growing up with that in a system where not, you know, the majority are not Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there was a lot of pushback, right? Because you, as a teenager, you just want to wear Nike and go to the mall and, you know, talk to boys. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it didn't really dawn on me until much later after college what his lessons and why they were so important in my life. Okay, so fun fact, my grandma and grandpa were friends with Larry Itliong. And they would call him Uncle Larry. My grandma would collect donations from local churches and drive all the way to Delano and drop them off for the farm workers and Tito Larry, as she would call him. And in exchange, Tito Larry would give my grandma boxes of fruits and vegetables to take home. Oh, that's amazing. I'm getting chills. I'm getting chills. Yeah. They're here. They're 100%. Here and my Uncle Pat remembers one of these visits and he told me. He talks about this in interviews with other students from the 80s and 90s, but he remembers the exact meeting where Larry Itliong passed the power down to Cesar Chavez and being present there and getting a tour from Tito Larry of all the working and living conditions of the farm workers there and just it being so eye-opening. Basically, that inspired him to go to college. Because Larry Ilion told okay. him it's important that the, this next generation of Filipinos get a higher education, that we're not just, like you said, workers in the field, that we are actually going to college and becoming something more. And I think for this now newer generation, and I say this for like my son's generation, your children's generation, Outside of being in the medical field or just being a government worker or being a nine to five, you know, uh, we have health care. What more can you do? You know, and I think that comes along with artists like you who are writing books like Beautiful Eyes and Justice for Journey that actually allow little kids to see themselves represented in media to see this possibility that there is more, that they can dream more, that there are people in this community that support them if they want to go into arts. Maybe it's not their parents, but there's people that look like them that support them and believe in them. And I think as an artist myself, if someone had given me permission to do my art, 
You know, I right. would have started a long time ago. I would have waited till after my father passed away in my 30s to actually take my <laughs> art seriously. Right. So I think what you do and the amount of care and responsibility to do your mediocre art and put it out there, I commend you, Gail. <laughs> and I am 100% forever a fan of everything you do, and especially Larry Leung, the musical. So thank you so much for, I, I mean, I just said a lot, but I just wanted to thank you for everything that you do. No, I mean, it's good to be in conversation and hearing you also what you've gone through. I mean, they're almost like very similar pathways, right? Like we were suppressed or didn't know that the rightest life or journey was for us. And we tried to be what we thought society needed us to be like really, really professional women in a certain way, in a very like Western way of success. And then, you know, we carved out our own journey and then, you know, then there's this motherhood thing too, that happens in a woman's life, which fun fact, many of the songs in Lariat Leon were written during COVID and I wrote them on a bunk bed. <laughs> I wrote them because I had a family of six and everybody was online. And the only place I could go was where my kids slept, which was a bunk bed. And I would lock the door and put myself in there and do Zoom with Brian Pangalinan. And we would go through the songs by any means necessary, right? Create by any means necessary. Like you've got a bug bed and you don't have an office. Just do it. I mean, you, you do it. Just do it. I mean, you have like, I mean, you can hear my kids right now screaming. I don't know if you can, but you've got like kids or family members or roommates or things like that. Like sometimes you need technology, but a lot of times you just need to dream. You need to dream but then you also need action and the action is the big part of it, right? Like the action is like, I've talked to so many folks who are like, I'm going to write my book. I want to do this. I want that. I'm like, yeah, you should. And I'm like, you don't need me to read it to tell you that you're any good. Actually, who cares what anyone thinks? Like if you're any good or not, like all that matters is that you like what you did and you put it out and then the market will tell you whether or not you did a good job. Right. And sometimes you might not have gotten a good job, but the market loves you anyway. So, hey, <laughs> I mean, and I'm not trying to say like, oh, I'm shitty or you have to be shitty. But really, thank you so much for supporting me and being there for many of my milestones, Nicole. Like you have been there for many of my artistic milestones, you know, at pivotal places in my life. You know, just being a woman artist, still trying to create past 28. You know what I mean? That's huge. That's huge. And so I don't want it to seem like, oh, yeah, she's she's really good and she's brilliant. And that's why she's putting her stuff out there. Like, I don't think I could ever be juggling all that and have like four kids and X, Y, Z. But it's kind of like, well, you know, it's not good all the time. And it never was good at the beginning. <laughs> you know what I mean? You actually don't need to have anything that I have. Some of it's crap. So, I mean, you know, some of it's really chaotic and thank God if you don't have some of the chaotic pieces, but you know, I just want folks to know, like you do not need perfect conditions and you do not need, you know, perfect skill and ability to be able to consistently have an art practice and consistently reach your goals as an artist 
or as a community member, you know, even as a, you know, an artist who's just getting there or an artist who wants to go back into it, or maybe an artist who's kind of left on their last legs and needs inspiration. Like I, I wouldn't want anyone to feel like, oh God, like maybe that person is just like really, really has it together and really smart. That's the only way that they're doing it. I wouldn't want this podcast to be like, oh, all these great things. But in actuality, it's like, you know what I'm talking about. Like it's chaos, chaotic moments after chaotic moments. And sometimes you land on your two feet and sometimes you don't and you push it out anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, well, let's see what happens. But I want folks to understand like, oh, well, let's see what happens. Should be a wonderful place for you to put your work out. Like it doesn't have to be like, oh, Jesus, I'm genius. It's like, yeah, well, the audience will tell me. <laughs> Instant feedback. Instant feedback. Instant feedback. Preview night. Instant feedback. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, well, whatever. <laughs> well, you know, speaking about the process of writing this musical and creating the songs for it, just as a writer myself, I like to know what lessons have you learned in this process? Oh, gosh. It has been the most different process I've ever had. Like, this is really, I feel like I'm talking to the other side. Like, I'm not even joking. Like, there's this one song called Watsonville that we played in the KQED show that you produce, that you put together for Balai. And we showed Watsonville this song. And I remember writing portions of that as a poem. And we didn't really know what to do with it until, so it's Kevin, Kami, and I, so we're there. And we kind of have like a base idea. And then we start going through Don's book, Little Manila's in the Heart, the makings of the Philippine ex American community in Stockton. We also start looking through the Carlos Bulasan book, America's in the Heart. And so we're really big, or at least I'm really big. If we got stuck specifically in Watsonville, I would just like try to talk to the ancestors and then I would just land on a page and see where that land took me. So I think it's called Bibliomancy. And that bibliomancy absolutely shaped Watsonville, which is a real like heart-wrenching song about the Watsonville riots and the bombing of the Filipino Federation of America building in Stockton. And so all of it was like based on intuition, poetry, and just like real raw emotion of historical accounts of what happened during these really violent moments in Filipino American history, where we were beat, we were killed, we were bombed in our own homes, in our neighborhood. And that really kind of crystallizes what Larry has been. It's been absolute joy, but it's been absolute joy in speaking with the other side and putting together what Dawn left us in her research and continually doing oral interviews with the community and making friends and new family in Delano with the folks who were actually there during the great Delano grape strike and who were there when the UFW was created. And so I feel like I'm seeing things as a researcher, but also kind of in a way it's like putting together a puzzle. And the puzzle was almost like if someone played a game of 
51. What is that card game? 51 pickup. Yep. Where you just took the deck of cards and like yep. blew them in the wind. And so you have to find it and put it together. And you're like, oh my God, that's what the message said. And so that's totally what the creation of Larry has been like. It's like absolutely following the intuition, reading so much of our texts from the past, looking at Dr. Don Mabalan's collected research, but also researching on my own and then working with my longtime collaborator, Kevin. We're not necessarily doing musical work here, but even though we've been part of the same band for like decades now, a Bobby Banduria band, but it's so nice to be able to collaborate because at first I was writing everything on my own. And then I asked him to come on as dramaturg and we worked so well together that we were just like, boom, boom, boom. And then we were doing all the bibliopancy and all the, oh my God, the lights just turned off on me. Like they're here, they're here, like trauma bonding. Like, <laughs> we're listening, we're listening to you guys. What do you want us to do? That it just like became like this really good like partnership and give and take of trying to like push it all out, but really feeling like the ancestors with us. And it's been so joyful to also work with Brian Pagolina. I worked up with him for 18 years back at Bindlestiff when he was managing director and our, I was artistic director. So that's another wonderful, you know, partnership, which as an older woman who has kids and a partner myself, it's so nice that I can have like these healthy partnerships with other people that are outside of my family home, but that I can get done, that I can do things with and have healthy relationships with folks and still be a whole person, not just like, oh, you know, this is her and this is her at work or this and that, like. It's really kind of like a very whole person that I'm bringing into each relationship that really pushes forward, like either my children, my family life, my music and the production of Larry, and also my writing and putting that out. Like I just have amazing work partners all across the board in all aspect, you know, of my creative and home life. So I'm forgetting now what the original <laughs> question okay. was, but like what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but what it's like to do that has been kind of like real intuitive, but it's intuitive, but the, at the same time, it's been really organized because the partnerships of which yeah. I work within have been just honed over like yeah. almost 20 years. So, yeah, you know, decades. Over 20, Again, 25 decades. years. <laughs> it's decades. Like, but remember when we started, like, who knew that we would say that? Like, oh, I've had a working relationship with them for 20 years. Like, who thought that? Like, did we? <laughs> no. Sorry. Anyway, that's just bothered my mind. I 100% feel you, you know, writing my uncle's script and, and his life's work. I also get these messages from him and these beautiful yes. gifts. The week I started writing the script, my other uncle was simultaneously writing a book about him and doing the research on it. And he happened to find, and I don't believe in coincidence, a term paper that a PhD student from UCLA wrote about my Uncle Pat. It was a 50-page term paper based on a three-hour interview he did with my uncle in the 90s. Actually, 1986. Oh, and my me uncle chills. found it at the San Francisco Public Library. Oh, my God. And wow. what, what was even crazier, it had my mother's signature on the front page because I guess she had donated it to Pace in the 90s. 
And it what? somehow got to the San Francisco library and he found it the same week I started writing the script. And I had literally prayed to my uncle, like, help me write this script. I don't know how to right. write language in the 70s. The terminology is completely different than how I talk. Help me write this script. And that week, he gave me that gift of that term paper. Wow. Yeah, and But you know, it's their energy. It's them. It's the ancestors. You've got a whole generation of people who want this story to be told. And they're all waiting for it. They've, we've all been waiting for it. They're waiting for it. So they're, I mean, yeah, no, I don't believe in coincidences. Yeah. And when you have to do it. I know I have to. You know, when I started, I finished the first draft in less than a month. Thank you. Uh, almost 100 pages, less than a month. And, you know, again, I wasn't happy with it. <laughs> it was, it's yeah. probably really but bad. But you did it. Um, but I did it. I got it all out. Yeah. And then it was like I had this aha moment of, like, this is why I'm on this planet. Yeah. It's to get the story out. This is why I was so close to my uncle. Right. You know, out of all of my 50 cousins, this is why I interviewed him before he passed away for hours on end about his stories at SF State and during the student strikes. And it was like this whole full circle moment of, oh, and this is why I went to broadcast journalism school and worked in New York, you know, as a Hollywood actor, writer for so long. It was just like all of these things finally like hit in a way they never hit before. No, because all of that is just like the intersection. I guess almost the channel has been open. The channel is open and it's like, oh, it's almost like you made it to the magic portal. <laughs> you could walk through the door now. Gail, we are we are magic you know portals. I mean? <laughs> We're mothers. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Oh, many. They've all walked through my door. Those children have all walked through my door. <laughs> You're alive. <laughs> Welcome to this time space reality, kid. <laughs> I know exactly. Like, so I know I can talk forever with you but I also want to be very mindful of your time because we are mothers just for a little context for those that like don't live in California or even in America what were the Watsonville riots and why were they so impactful for Filipino American history but people don't understand or they were never taught our communities have never been taught is that there has been violence against Filipino Americans for decades that were racially motivated. It was anti-Asian, anti-Filipino American, anti-immigration violence that was placed on our bodies, our families, and communities for decades. We're talking about since Filipinos were coming in, even from pensionados onto the 70s, I think they were still bombing Filipino Americans, like firebombing Filipino American farm workers in the 1970s. And so what people don't know, it happened on a daily occurrence. And, you know, the old timers, like the modern generation used to joke that it was a favorite pastime of people to go into Filipino towns or little Manilas where Filipinos were segregated and where they could live. It was a pastime for white boys or white men to come out with baseball bats. And for fun, they would just hit Filipinos and they would make light of it, but it wasn't even making light of it. That's actually the truth. You know, they would 
castrate Filipinos. They would tie Filipinos to trees. I won't name names of what city because I live near them. Not only were there the Watsonville riots, but then there was also the Wapato riot where they actually, Filipinos actually built a moat. They built a moat around where they had lived and they brought in all their guns, you know, to protect themselves. And they called the sheriff. Of course, the sheriff didn't arrest anybody. And so most of the time, no one was getting arrested for this violence against Filipinos. Some of the most well-known acts of violence against us in American history was the Watsonville riots where over 500 white men came in the Watsonville area and beat and chased out Filipinos out of that area near Santa Cruz and killed a Filipino. His name was Furman Tabera and killed him in the closet. And um, there have been reports and published accounts that he was killed by teenage boys teenage white boys. And, you know, I had met some folks who actually were there in the same bunkhouse when Furman died. Their uncles were in the same bunkhouse and they were all hiding and cowering when the violence started happening. And so nobody was arrested. And this happened late 1929 into the first week of 1930, right? So all of this anti-Asian, anti-Filipino sentiment was happening and turning into riots up and down the West Coast. And so that happened. And then at the very beginning of the year, white supremacists actually bombed the Filipino Federation of America building in downtown Stockton. So that happened within one week of each other. So if you can imagine, Larry Itleon was around 16 at that time. Many of the modern generations were all like teenagers to their early 20s. It was a generation made up of young men, of predominantly young men. Can you imagine how they were shaped that whole generation of getting violence acted out upon them daily? And who would they become? Well, if you've met any model, you would know that they were tough, they were rough, and they would tell you to your face where to go if you weren't doing the right thing. And so that's the kind of generation that that kind of mob violence against us how they turned out, right? The Monons and how they ended up caring and nurturing our community. They're really tough and they were fighters. And so for those folks who don't know, that was a normal occurrence then. It was a normal occurrence until the 70s. And when we talk about violence against our bodies, I mean, it's still a normal occurrence now to be scared as Asian Americans. Like if I'm going to Huntington Beach or the OC and my whole family looks like they're Asian because we are Asian, are we going to get harmed? Like if I decide to go drive through Oregon, you know, am I going to get hurt? This this is very real. Like I drive through, you know, to go to my sister's house in Seattle almost, you know, I did it every year for like almost 15 years. But now it's like, mm, if I stop near the little towns in Mount Shasta, are people going to say something to me? Because they have. Some people have told me like we use the bathroom at McDonald's and go on a bathroom break. Like they talk about me to my face about how many children I have um, because I'm brown. Right. Because it's like the proliferation of like these brown bodies in a white world, in their mind, in a white world, when in reality, you know, white is minority. And so when we talk about what happened at Watsonville in those eras, in those times and the bombings that were going on, it hasn't really stopped. So for some people, maybe they think it stopped or it's ended, but not really.
there's different things that occur with it, especially online and in the media that happen to us when we have violence against our bodies daily. But it's still happening and we're still fighting against it and we're still organizing against it. And so you just know now that it happened in those years and they continually still happen today. Yeah. So I was just researching the Watsonville riots the other night and yeah, 200 white men were hunting Filipinos in that week mm-hmm. of 1930. A lot of it was sparked because of their not only hatred of brown and black bodies, but also this jealousy because the taxi dance hall had just opened. For, yes. For those that don't mm-hmm. know, taxi dance halls were the only place for Filipino men to have any kind of interaction with a woman because during that time when they immigrated, they were not allowed to bring their wives and children and women were not allowed to immigrate. Uh, it was only men because, you know, <laughs> America just wanted workers, hardworking workers in the fields and the canneries as bellhops. They didn't want families, you know, because of racism. And so right. these monongs only had these taxi dance halls where they would play music and then they would be able to dance with women, white women. And the Watsonville riot started because these men were so jealous and so, you know, hateful of these brown bodies just touching or being in an environment with other white women. Right. All stemming from racism and hatred against the other. And so, yeah, I think it's important to also note that historically, just because it's this jealousy and this continuing narrative of they're taking this away from us. They're taking our jobs yes. away from us. They're taking our women away from us, you know, as a very like patriarchal, you know, uh, toxic <laughs> narrative of ownership of women's bodies and ownership of right. all these things. It's It goes along again with this importance of, being able to think critically and to question everything and to see what has happened in the past is continuing to happen now and to question this patterning and not just go along with everything because we're a good Filipino and a good good Asian minority. White supremacists and, and the conditions of which, you know, that daily violence was occurring to our people like they were so fearful of our sexuality. They were so fearful of a brown man being with a white woman or to be desirable. And you have to be on such a different reality and plane where someone else's sexuality threatens you to your core and makes you want to kill someone or inflict great bodily injury. And I'm not talking about like some random person who decided to do it. I'm talking about a whole community who decided to do it and continuously does it. That's some systemic violence and trauma that we pass down And I don't know if you felt this before, but like makes you want to not have any sexuality when you place yourself out there or not and to be absolutely completely neutral so you don't get beat. So I get 
where our community sometimes is when they won't pick a side. They won't say anything and they just want to keep on making money or doing X, Y, Z so that we could be comfortable. Uh, we've been beaten into submission all just by who the core of who we are. Mm, yes. some it, it, It's something that we can't even change mm. and not that we would want to if we could. Mm. But this is why it's important to have a new generation of change makers and yes. disruptors. Right. It's, it's, yes, please. Yeah. The next the children, and I'm I'm excited to see where they go. Right. It's been handed to them. Yeah. A path is there, and we're opening it's a these doors. Arc. We're, open, we're yeah, opening exactly. these portals, Gail. They've yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had to keep them open. We're, do- we're doctor <laughs> stranging it for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Huh? Take this necklace. Yeah. Just <laughs> oh, all right. Are we going to wrap this up? Where can folks watch Larry the Musical? When is it going to be available? Where we're eagerly awaiting. Well, the dream is, is that it actually travels and there's a nationwide tour for Larry the Musical. Until then, you can find it and hope to see you there at Brava Theater in San Francisco in the Mission District beginning March 16th through April 14th. That is our run. And pre-sale tickets that um have are that are decreased in price right so the the earlier you buy your tickets the cheaper they will be so they should be on sale by october 15th at the brava theater website and also at www.larrythemusical.com it'll automatically send you to uh to purchase tickets through brava also you can find us on Instagram at Larry the Musical. You can also find me on Instagram at GR Roma Santa. And you can also find me at FADF, Filipino American Development Foundation. And, um, you know, and also you'll see me speaking at some events in Stockton uh, through in, in during FOM in October, which it should be October now. <laughs> Yeah, this will be See, this will be coming out October fourth. So, I'll be speaking at free events, the Fawn Fest in Stockton on October fourteenth, and also the Filipino American National Historical Society Larry opening and exhibit the National Museum, the Fawn National Museum in Stockton on October twenty first. You can see my work and hear me speak at those places, but definitely check out and purchase those tickets in advance because we're pretty sure it's going to sell out when we can mount this again post spring 2024 i don't know so if you invest in it if you donate in larry the musical if you purchase a ticket and then or and or share our information to folks who would like to see it the better chances we have of continuing to tell this very important filipino american history and for other folks in our community to see it and to be touched by it and be able, hopefully, to be inspired by it to write their own stories, right? Either they're inspired by it because they're crying and it's so good, or they're inspired by it because it sucks so bad they need to redo the whole darn thing. Whatever floats your boat, I hope it's because it's so good and you're crying. Will I be so lucky? I don't know. 
<laughs> and 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 for folks that don't live in America or can't get a plane ticket out to California, they can still see some of the songs, right? You can find them on Instagram, okay. and they might live on our website, so folks can see that. But I'm just joking when I'm saying like it may be horrible. It actually is really it's good. It's so like, good, I'm, Gail. Go on. It's really good. The previews, it's really the previews good. that I've seen so far that I've blessed and you know been able to see so far it is so good and the talents the i mean we could have a whole hour and you know we should we should have a whole hour and bring some of the actors on board and be interviewed on our podcast uh next year when you guys open because it's talents i mean it's like half of broadway barcada up there on that stage it is so amazing. You know, we have so much talent in our communities. The fact that we don't push for us to become like professional artists is amazing because, you know, our talent and our affinity and our love for the arts by way of singing and performance as a culture really shows in how talented the cast and our creative team are. It's like we've been preparing this since we were born. Yeah. Like our families have been putting a mic in our hands yeah. since we were two. So... <laughs> We're here. We're here. <laughs> All right, girl. I'm going to let us go. Well, thank you, Nicole. Big hugs, Mama. Thank you, Sue. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Gail. I really appreciate you. One of the lessons I took away from this conversation is this idea and rejection that we must strive to be the absolute best and perfect in order to put our creative work out there. Gail advises against fixating on the idea of being the best, as there will always be individuals with more advantages and resources, and instead she emphasizes the value of simply just doing the work and putting it out into the world, editing it as needed. Her perspective challenges the perfectionism that often hinders creativity, especially among marginalized communities like ours, and instead She encourages us to overcome societal stereotypes and biases by just creating narratives that center our experiences, our emotions, and our dreams. You know, this lesson reminds me of the first time I shot my first film, Love and Corona. In 2021, during the pandemic, I decided to transition from acting to directing. And despite my years of experience on set, had this crippling imposter syndrome because I never attended film school. I eventually realized I didn't need permission to bring my script to life. And you know what? My script didn't need to attain this unattainable state of perfection before I shot it. So I gathered a team of dedicated and talented crew here in the Bay Area, financed the entire project on my credit cards, and actually completed it within six months. Love and Corona was accepted into six film festivals across the nation, including San Francisco's Cam Fest, and it even premiered at the iconic Chinese theaters on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, illustrating that prioritizing progress over perfection can actually manifest some amazing results. Gail also shares the importance of fostering creativity as a means of empowerment and liberation. 
She talks about the detrimental impact of being consistently regulated to the sidelines, reduced to stereotypes, or seen primarily as a source of labor. By cultivating a new generation of critical thinkers and encouraging the creation of art and narratives that reflect our lived experiences, emotions, desires, and dreams, we challenge the prevailing stereotypes, disrupt this current system, and reshape the way we're perceived both by society and even ourselves. And during this Filipino American History Month, it's a powerful reminder that artistic expression has the potential in reshaping collective narratives and fostering a sense of belonging and agency. I feel this lesson serves as important call to action, urging all of us to become storytellers, artists, and creators in order to assert our presence, dignity, and worth in a world that historically marginalized and devalued us. And of course, to support this next generation of creatives, not just forcing them to take the road most traveled. You can find Gail and her work at LarryTheMusical.com and her publishing company at BridgeDelta.com. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Salover. You can follow me on Instagram at Kindred Kapwa. This podcast is co-produced by John Reyes and Belay Creative, and it is a product of Cultivate Labs. Stay in touch at BelayCreative.org.